Boy, it's good to be home. It's good. To, I mean, when we think about this, 15 weeks on the road, seven different locations, 12 if you count all the different houses that we met in for Little Church, and now we're back here. And I think it's important for us to pay attention to what defines people and what defines places. And for us, having only met here for the first year that we were a part of South Everett Fourscore, we couldn't delineate the two. What makes us us? about the people who we are, and what makes us us about the place where we meet. These are things that I think about, because I think there's nuances that help us understand what makes people and places special. Amen? There's two different things. And what I learned in our time away, one is that God is faithful, even down to the last minute, sometimes with less than 48 hours until we were gathering, switching locations because transformers were blowing, or the school had libraries full of materials and we couldn't meet. He made a way for his church to gather every single week. Amen? Every week, other congregations reaching out and saying, we will welcome you because you're a part of the family. We might reciprocate that with some of them and really pack it out in here a couple Sundays, which would be really fun because the church is people. But place matters. And that's the one thing that really stuck out to me is that the thing that was missing while we were gone was our proximity to our neighbors that aren't a part of this fellowship, but are nonetheless our neighbors, a people marked with the spirit and the fingerprint of God who we get to influence. And that's what I missed. And when we came back, we spent about six hours in here organizing our, our connex, our storage container, and then getting this room put together as much as it could be. And we began to see our neighbors return. At eight this morning, one of our neighbors we hadn't seen in months showed up just to say hello, and we're glad that you're back. And so it matters where we meet. This neighborhood is important. This place, this room that we meet in, is important to our neighbors. It's close to the hearts of our neighbors. Little Red, they keep changing the name of this place, but this will always be Little Red. This will always be a place where the community gathers. I sat in a meeting in here on Thursday afternoon with 22 service providers and got to preach the gospel without preaching the gospel, but talking about the difference between people and places and why they both matter. But the Lord has given us influence, and he's given us a renewed influence. That's really important to remember, that as we return, let's not return to some old rhythm, but let's return to a place where the Lord has said, you will worship here because this isn't a battle like normal battles. This isn't flesh and blood kind of battles. This is a battle of powers and principalities. And to worship in this space influences what happens here all week long. Amen? So let's be that kind of people. And we are that kind of people at our core. As we begin a new series this week for the next four weeks called At Our Core, it's important to know that this isn't a typical congregation of people. This isn't a group of passive observers. When I look around the room, I don't find one person who isn't making some sort of significant contribution to the ministry that the Lord has called this congregation to. That's encouraging. There's no wallflowers here. Everybody's doing something. Amen? Amen. That is significant. And because we're a congregation of leaders, because we're a congregation of committed servants, I want to honor you as such. The leadership team of this church wants to honor every person as such because it's so easy to fall into the rhythms and to be lulled to sleep by tradition. But as we go into this series called At Our Core, we're going to be talking about what matters to us as South Everett Foursquare, what we do in light of what matters, and why we do it. 
So next to you, I'm going to ask the people on the edge of the aisles to help me out a little bit. Uh, Next to each person is a brochure, and I want you to pick it up. It says, Core Values and Behaviors of South Everett Foursquare Church. I've I've had two of these and lost both already. So if there's an extra one sitting around, there we go. Uh, I want you to grab this, and what I want you to do is not get overwhelmed by it. I want you to open the front cover, okay? The participation, right? Focus, participation. Everybody just grab this, and what we're, I feel like one of those flight attendants, like you've got exits over here, and the peanuts will be coming by in a little bit, because we've got one aisle now, right? <laughs> Laboratory's still in the back. Good thing I'm not flying the plane. <clears throat> but I may jump out of one next spring with Chris Norby. We'll see. That's one of, woo, right? All right. All right. Just open the pamphlet, right, and then just and then just cut, just fold it back so that you're only looking at this thing that says sacred relationships. That's where I want you to be. And then I want you, once you get it there, you see the sacred relationships, I want you to put it away so you're not looking at it. Amen? Okay. We'll get to it. <sighs> sacred relationships. I want to tell you a story <clears throat> from, from college days. I attended Seattle Pacific University way, way back in the day, and I would commute by public transportation from Kirkland on the east side over to the kind of the north slope of Queen Anne Hill on a bus, actually two buses, sometimes three buses, to get from Kirkland over to Seattle Pacific University and back three days a week. And so I would take the 17 bus there. It was my last bus that I would take from downtown up to the campus. And then I would take that campus back, that very same 17 bus right there, the Sunset Hill bus. I'd get on that bus from Nickerson and 3rd Avenue and cruise back into the city, and I'd have about 15 minutes on that first leg of the commute to just decompress a whole bunch of lectures, a whole bunch of learning. I might listen to music. I might get ahead on some required reading. But one day I got on the bus and I just sat I think I was reading, and then I began to listen to this conversation that was happening right behind me. And on that particular afternoon, I entered into this conversation that was already in process. It was already happening when I sat down on the bus. It had been going on before I got on the bus. But in that moment, my attention was captivated by the conversation of two city dwellers that sit right right in the back of the bus. And they were having a conversation And it was clear in their conversation that one had committed a serious offense against the other at some level. And he was offering repentance. He was saying, would would I be able to have forgiveness from you? And the man recounted the offense. I felt like the back corner of the bus was flooded with the tangible presence of God's grace. It was overwhelming in that moment to just wash and bathe in the words and the interaction that was happening between the one who had, been, uh, had committed an offense, was repenting of it, and then the one who was offering forgiveness on behalf of that offense. It was a magnificent gesture of genuine forgiveness on the part of the traveling companion. And as I listened to this conversation, it was like the soundtrack of he- heaven was just resonating within my soul. It was a beautiful thing, and I just sat back on the bus, and I didn't read, and I didn't listen to music, but I listened to this conversation and the rhythms of grace going back and forth between these two men. And it just lulled me into a place of, like, the presence of God, like I hadn't experienced it for so long. And I got off the bus on 6th in Westlake in downtown Seattle. 
And I turned around because these gentlemen had followed me off the bus and there was a long brick wall right outside the Weston Hotels. And I turned around to see them because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And as as soon as I turned around to see them, they were gone. They were gone. These men were no longer there. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1, and it says, Keep on loving strangers as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some have shown hospitality to others without knowing it. Some have entertained angels. I believe that there are angelic visitations, moments of grace. I'm sure if we went around the room, some of you would recount them. And if we haven't, we might be skeptical, but once we've experienced it, we know that it's true. This is a day that I've never forgotten, and as we begin a conversation on a first value, something that we value as a church being sacred relationships, I can think of no better example in my life when heaven has shown me what it looks like to be in sacred relationship with one another. So what does that mean for us as has been defined by our leadership team over the course of the last year? You can open up again and take a look at your handout. We're going to be covering all five of these values over the course of the next four weeks. This is important because we're not a passive congregation. We're an active people put here on purpose. And as our leadership team has been defining what matters to us over the course of the last year because we're South Everett Foursquare missionaries, what our goal for this year is for us to begin to attach what we're actually doing because we do so many wonderful things. Sometimes I think we just forget why we do it. And the more we have clarity about why we do what we do, the better we'll be at it and the more influential we'll be in the neighborhood. So the goal for this year is for us as individuals in this congregation to begin to attach the things that we do associated with our faith family, with these values that are recorded here. I would suggest that every person has one of these documents, not just for their church, but for their own life. That's something that our leadership team has been working on. I could show you one of these for my own life. Having clarity of purpose as a believer in Jesus is paramount, absolutely paramount. And so we'll be digging into these things. And as you go, because you do do these things, as you read these documents, these values and behaviors, you're going to say, you know what, that sounds like us. That sounds like I know who we are. But we're articulating these things because clarity matters. So at South Everett Foursquare Church, we are committed to healthy, vibrant, family-centered relationships, both with God and with others. We are created in God's image, designed to thrive in relationship with God and others. We value healthy and vibrant relationships with our congregation, with visitors, neighbors, and with our city. This health and vibrancy comes from God, who has moved towards us at all costs through the person of Jesus. It is our commitment to move towards one another with a similar demonstration of love, courage, grace, and humility modeled by Jesus. Especially, this is where it gets fun in relationships, don't you know, right? Especially when conflict arises in our, in our relational pursuits. Anyone got conflict in their relational pursuits? We're going to do a little workshop on conflict this morning. It's going to be awesome. The Bible talks about it. In those moments where trouble comes, we aim for reconciliation like two angels on the back of a bus and restorative practice in our relationships. That's what we aim for, not perfection. The church is compelling when it stops trying to be perfect in its relationships. 
It denies the grace of Jesus to say we got this thing figured out on our own. Amen? So sacred, that which is pure, that's what is blameless. That which we consider as sacred cannot be, by definition, weighted down, polluted, or contaminated, or defiled. That's what sacred means. It's pure. It's to be pursued. But without the grace of Jesus, we will never get to sacred because relationship is everything. Relationship is everything. When God was about the work of creation, none of us were there, but we can imagine creation at that moment. He called many things good. He said the light was good. He said the land and the seas were good. This is all recorded in Genesis chapter 1. It says the vegetation was good. The lights in the sky that governed the night and the day, they were good. The creatures of the land and the sea, they were good. And then Genesis 1, 26 through 31. Let's read this. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. Important theological language. Let us make God in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and the wild animals, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, in the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. This is what he said. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw what he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening and night on the sixth day. Everything was good except for creation. That which was created in God's image was very good. Do you notice that? It was good. 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 It was very good. His people, who he designed to be in relationship with, was very good. So the question then is, what isn't very good? Because there's one of those in Genesis recorded as well. It is not good. The only time it is not good recorded in the book of Genesis, after five goods and one very good, there's a not good, and it says it is not good for mankind to be alone. Wow. There's only one thing that isn't good in all of creation, and that's we be by ourselves. Sacred relationships are worth fighting for because God said they were very good and it was not good for us to be outside of them. Everything that is has been birthed out of the soil of pure, morally blameless, sacred relationship. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In the beginning... God, period. It goes on to creation. In the beginning, God created, and we want to 
workaholic selves that we are want to get on to what he created, but it says, in the beginning, God. Rest. Because he was perfect. Relationship existed. He created it to share, us, share it with us. And love was the catalyst. Love was the catalyst for all of creation. Love was. So three considerations this morning. Three things that we'll take a look at. Number one, the beauty of sacred relationship. What makes it beautiful? And then the root of its decay. The root of their decay, these sacred relationships. Second, what did decay cost us? What did we lose when relational decay took place? And what has God done to restore it? And then finally, what is the pathway back for us as his church towards sacred relationship? Because it's worth fighting for? Because don't you know that good relationships don't just come about because we leave them sitting on the shelf? They require hard work and maintenance and forgiveness and repentance and all the beautiful things that I experienced in the back corner of that bus number 17 driving down into the core of the city in 2001. Those things are worth fighting for. Psalm 33.1. We talked about this a couple weeks ago out in Snohomish. How good and pleasant, Norby mentioned it this morning in his prayer, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good and pleasant that is. Let's just abide there for a minute. How good it is, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Let's consider, and here's a question for us. This is the workshop part of this morning because we're going to go out and practice this, especially with the relationship that we're struggling with. But what do pure and undefiled relationships provide for you? When you think about that individually, when you have relationships that are really rocking and they're really in a good place, what's it do for you? How does it help you? How does it fuel you? How does it feed you? Those answers will be different for each of us, but think, I'm not even going to answer the, well, I am going to answer the question for me, but not for you. What do they provide for you? For me, these sacred relationships give me peace. They give me peace to be vulnerable which is what I'm going to need to be if I decide that my relationships aren't perfect or decide to admit it because they obviously aren't. It's not up to me whether they're perfect or not. They're a mess. They give me peace, sacred relationships, to be vulnerable, to be transparent, to be real and authentic with somebody else. They give me courage. Sacred relationships give me courage to pursue the fullness of Jesus with others. Not by myself, because it's not good we'd be alone. It's very good that we be together in relationship. So if we want to do sacred relationships, it's going to take more than just me or just you. It takes us. So I have courage. And then I have confidence to know we're going to make it. <laughs> this place, this body is going to make it. It is making it. And it keeps journeying forward. We're making it together. So think about this. Think about a beautiful relationship that you have in your life. Think about one right now that's really at a place where you want it. Just think about that for a minute. What makes it that way? What's good about it? What we're going to do right now is take two minutes. You're going to pull out your phones, right? Pull out your phones. You can pull out your phone in church. I don't want you to do this all the time, right? Stare at the screen in front of you. Some of you may be like, I left my phone in my car, Hal Covey. Good job, dude. He leaves his phone in his car. 
could have learned something from that man. Right? Pull out your phone if you got it. Pull out your phone. Apple phones, Google phones, Android phones, flip phones. Anyone got a flip phone? Anybody got one? Yeah, Mary Reed. Yep, flip phone. That's right. I want you to text that person and just tell them what is sacred about the relationship that you have with them. In like 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, just send a quick text to that person right now and tell them what's sacred. Say, you know what? I, you don't even have to tell them you're doing homework at church. Like you just say, hey, I appreciate this about you. Do it now. Do a little relational maintenance, a little relational soil feeding right now. If your phone's not with you, think about who that will be and do it before you go to bed tonight. Considering these beautiful relationships. If there's beauty in relationship, there's also a risk that the relationships that we have aren't beautiful. That what makes the beauty so beautiful is to know that it's not the norm. It takes fighting for because the damaging relationships prove the beauty of the good ones. The dark proves the light when the light shines in the darkness. Wow, that is magnificent, isn't it? Because I don't see that very much. So there's decay in our relationships, too. We're going to think about one of those people. Don't worry, we won't be texting them right now. That's not, that's not good practice for conflict resolution. I was a communication major at SPU, so I did a lot of conflict resolution stuff. How to live in well-oiled, well-fashioned relationship. Conflict is a huge part of that. So if love and unblemished relationship were the catalyst for love, think about this, the catalyst for creation, love and unblemished relationship, that's why God created, because Father, Son, and Spirit, a triune God, shared perfect relationship, and God wanted to share that unblemished relationship with others. If love and unblemished relationship are the catalyst for creation, then disbelief and deception are the catalyst for death and destruction. Disbelief? In deception. Think about how that factors into our relationships that aren't as healthy as they could be right now, aren't as sacred as they could be right now. Genesis 3, we fast forward in the story just a little bit past two different creation accounts that show us the whole picture, and we find the serpent makes his way into the garden. Did two things in that moment in the presence of Eve was to question God's goodness. Did God really say? And then to gloss over the consequences of sin. Surely you won't die if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is God really good? Surely you won't die. Deception and disbelief are the things that tear down our relationships. Think about the most broken relationship you have right now. And where deception and disbelief play into it. 
workshop this thing out in your head. Because it's the tools the enemy uses to break down sacred relationship. Because if he can break down relationships, then he can get us alone. And God said, what? It's not good for man or woman to be. It's so slippery. It's so kind of behind the scenes. We don't even see it happening. It's deceptive. It's deceitful. It's stealthy. But it creeps in. So where do deception and where does disbelief play into our relationships that will be more sacred when we get rid of those two elements? Where do those things play in for us? So three questions or three things. One is the root. When we're talking about decay in relationship, the first one is the root. And the root is this. Trust and innocence were broken when God's children were led to believe that sacred relationship could exist apart from God. If you eat from this tree, you will be like him, and you won't actually need him because you'll be on par with him. See? You'll be on par with God. We were led to believe that we didn't need God to have sacred relationship, and boy, isn't that the foundation. We need God in it. The question then becomes, if that is the root, the question is, what kind of things have inflicted harm on our broken relationships? The recovery process, you ever go to an AA meeting, they use something called the 12 steps, and the fourth step's a really, really tricky one. The first three are all about believing that God belongs in the middle of it, and the fourth one's like, all right, let's talk about everything that didn't go so well (laughs) since you were born. Sometimes the step between the third step and the fourth step for a lot of human beings seeking recovery and relationships takes years because you're asked to write down all the broken spaces. Whew, honesty transparency, realness. That's a fourth step. What's going wrong in these things? Some basics, right? Here's some basics. Unmet expectations. Paul talks about the things that break down relationship in multiple epistles, multiple books in the New Testament. But unmet expectations comes up, which can lead, according to Paul, to things like gossip, bitterness, resentment, anger, Concerning unmet expectations. Do you know what's worse than unmet expectations? Uncommunicated unmet expectation. You ever get mad at your kids for not doing what you thought that they should do, but you never told them not to do it? (laughs) Ever have a boss do that to you? Human resources. (laughs) Uncommunicated unmet expectations lead to things like gossip, bitterness, resentment, and anger. Other things that break down relationship, insecurity, which can lead to things like foolish talk and deceit and slander. Another thing, self-centered motives in relationships can lead to evil desires, lust, and greed. There's so much that wants to break down what God has said is very good. So much that wants to break it down. And so the challenge then is this. Consider one relationship that could be going better in your life, in our lives, than it currently is. Just one. And not perfect, because there's no perfection. This document that's still wet in the mud, we can change this thing, but for now it's driving us, right? That we're not aiming for perfection in our relationships, we're aiming for reconciliation, restorative practices. means when we goof it up, we're going to do something about it, instead of gossip and assume stuff, and getting mad. This church is so good at that. This is such a good 
family of people for doing that. I spend like maybe 1% of my time dealing with relational conflict within this body. This is uncommon. Ben Dixon said that it would be. So let's not take for granted what we have. It's good. This is something to celebrate. This is a healthy group of people. Let's keep going. Be encouraged and keep going and keep inviting people in and let them know how we play. Because right now, we're playing well. The culture's good. We can keep growing. Amen. But think about the relationships that aren't so hot. I could be in here too and make some resolves. It could be costly to do this, by the way. We lost something in decay. We lost something in the decay. But Jesus has come to give it all back to us. What did we lose more than anything? I've been thinking about this. What we lost, I think, more than anything was proper alignment in our relationship. You ever go to the chiropractor because something's out of line, out of whack? It causes pain all over your body when things aren't in alignment. Same spiritually. I would say that pride, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3, is the root of the breakdown. When we decide that we need to elevate ourselves to an equal plane with God, that's where all the problems start to come in our relationship with him and with each other because no one will serve if everyone has to be right. The disciples ran into that mess in the upper room. They were arguing about who could be best so no one served each other, and boy, did things break apart until Jesus stepped into that moment. We will see in Philippians in just a minute that Jesus and what he modeled is very contrary to elevating ourselves onto a plane with who God is. It's super contrary to what God does. But our triune God, here's the good news, that he came to reclaim broken relationship. Why would he do that? Why would he do that for us? Because he, more than anyone, knew what was lost when relationship was broken. Because he's the only one that ever lived outside of Adam and Eve for a minute in a world without sin. We're born into it. We're born into dysfunction. We're born into brokenness. And sometimes we don't know how broken it is, so we don't know how worthwhile it is to pursue what's better than we could ever know this side of heaven. But he knew He knew what he lost, and he knew how much he'd give to get it back. back. He'd give all of it. He'd give everything. Jesus and the thieves. When I started thinking about a passage that would, as deep as it could get in terms of dysfunction in relationship, how deep would we get and Jesus would still forgive? How deep and ugly could it get? So I started thinking about that this week. How deep and ugly could it possibly get? And I got to the thief and Jesus, the two thieves and Jesus on the cross. But when I see him, when we see him in glory one day, I want to ask Jesus, hey, in that moment, can we go back and talk about that for a minute? What was the worst part of the passion for you, Jesus? What was the worst part? Was it the garden when you kept doing in obedience what you knew would be painful to your flesh? Was that the worst? Or Jesus, was it the betrayal? Was it when Judas came with the money? Or was it the denial when Peter, who said he'd never disown you, just leaves you hanging out there with your hand up with a high five, like, I'm hanging, right? And And Peter's like, I'm walking. Which was the worst part, Jesus? I wonder about these things. But I think, I think, I don't know, I'll have to ask him, but I think, It got a little bit worse 
on the cross with the criminals. The cross was rock bottom for the greatest human offense in all of history. The cross was the rock bottom. Jesus came that far to restore the broken relationship. He came all the way to the cross. Luke 23, if you want to turn there and we'll read it. Verses 32, this is in the middle of the, it's the, middle of the fight. People are screaming, yelling, crying, Jesus is bloody. He's in it. This is it. He's in it. Luke records two other men, both criminals, were also let out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Think about what's happening in this moment. Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. They could have been helping. (laughs) Jesus played these things out. They stood and they watched. Implicit. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If, if, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. That's what it was like when Jesus was bleeding out on the cross for them. Still questioning. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, if. You are the king of the Jews. Save yourself. Sometimes if we just get lost in these moments of the narrative, we can imagine a time when we made a much lesser sacrifice for somebody else, and they didn't appreciate it. You know, it's Thanksgiving. Mom didn't say anything about the cranberry jam. <laughs> Worked all day on that. Me. Right? Our little ridiculous offenses the things that we do for people that we don't get something back from. We think about him. <laughs> the man on the cross, right? He was mocked by the crowd. He was sneered by the religious leaders in the darkest places of these men's intent. They hoped that the crowd would connect a couple things together. That, that what they were witnessing on the cross right in front of them would harken back in their memory what they'd learned in, in Bible school, growing up as little good boys and girls learning the Torah, more the boys than the girls, but it got around. He was hoping, the crowd, the religious leaders were hoping that these things would be connected so that they would see he is not the Savior. Look at that, and then let's go back to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 through 23. All the good little Jewish boys knew exactly what that said, because it was a rule. And boy, were they good at keeping rules. And what they saw would have taken them back to Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23. If someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death... And their body is exposed on a pole. You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. Connect the two. The religious leaders are saying, see, it's just like, just a criminal. He was, you thought he is the king. The crowd mocked. The teachers sneered. The soldiers joined in the logic of the moment to think, well, God, maybe he isn't. 
And then the thief at rock bottom. Save yourself, Jesus. Swindoll in his commentary says, in that moment, the question they wanted everyone to assume was how could a dying Savior save himself? They're trying to disprove him. But Jesus pursues. Jesus forgives. Jesus welcomes at rock bottom. What will we do? After all, it isn't good for mankind to be alone for relationship, for sacred relationship. Jesus came all the way at all costs. I wish it ended there, but Paul had something to say as well. Finally, as we conclude, the pathway back to sacred relationships for us. Maybe some of you have already received a text back from somebody that you texted 15 minutes ago. Maybe there's someone that doesn't even know you. You're going to take a dive on pride. You're going to take a dive on what's due to you to get back into a relationship and pursue it. Not to be abused in it, but to set healthy boundaries and extend grace where you can, where we can, into those places. What do we do to get back in the really broken ones? Because we're already stressed about who we're not going to be with at Thanksgiving and Christmas. I know we are. Come on, we're just real people. Who are we already looking forward to or not looking forward to being with? <laughs> if we're real, come on. There's some place to work there. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Doggone it. Look at that Savior extending his hands. And then he says to us, because he's already told us about what he's going to do, what he did for us. Paul then says, who was rescued by the same God that rescued me and you and me, says in Philippians chapter 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Talk on it. Who, now we're going to talk about who Jesus was, who in being very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be taken to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Nothing. Taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? This is that sacred relationship. Our attitude should be the very same as that of Christ Jesus. Well, I need grace to do that because I can't do my relational pursuits in a bubble. Wow, he's a good God. Jesus was way too in love with us to fall in love with his title. Way too in love with us. He took on the the place, the title of a servant, humbled himself, embraced obedience, and the Father exalted him. So here's a little nugget. Let's let our daddy take care of what place we stand in a line, okay? Let's let him take care of that. How big our little congregation is. It's big. And it fits within the unity of the body of Christ. Because you know that the big congregations, the ones with thousands of people just up and down the street from here, love that we're here, 
And I love that they're there because we're doing exactly what we get to do, meeting in this busted up broken room that's getting nicer by the minute. But who cares where we meet? Because we're us. In the community, the neighbors are walking in to say, hey, welcome back. We've missed you. We get to be that. And we get to be it when we pursue sacred relationships. That's what we get to be, as big as he's made us. Big in spirit, small in nature, but the big pastors, the ones from the bigger congregations are saying, don't try to be what you're not, because we wish we could do what you're doing, because you are who you are. God made us to be us, and you to be you, and you have attributes that we don't have, so quit trying to be someone that you're not. That was extra. That didn't even fit in this message, but that's like, hmm. Imagine the moment, imagine the spirit, the flood of grace that came between the one soldier who mocked Jesus, but then the other. Do you remember what he said? (laughs) I'm sorry, I see it. My eyes have been opened. Would you forgive me? He said, yeah, today, you and me, we're going to heaven together. (laughs) We're going together. What existed in that moment, I'm certain, is exactly the kind of spirit that existed when I met two angels on a bus in Seattle. I know that might sound crazy to some people. I'm not, I'm not all up like, I'm probably the most conservative evangelical Pentecostal there is, but I know when God is present. And I don't know if I've ever experienced the presence of God more mightily than in that moment. And turn around to see them, gone. But that spirit of unity, the sacred relationship that poured out like a flood, sacred relationships are worth fighting for in this When we have active relational tension, think about it, find it. Know that there is untapped relational grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. If we have relational tension that we cannot figure out in our own strength, if we stop and say, Holy Spirit, I'd like to invite you into the midst of that relationship. We're reviewing a curriculum right now called Rooted. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a discipleship tool. It's good. Like, oh, I've been following Jesus my whole life, so I'm just going to read through this thing for new believers read through, but it's just a review to make sure it's right. You know, we think that way sometimes. We've been walking with Jesus so long. And then this thing in this book just says, well, just write down some places that you'd like to actively invite the power of the Holy Spirit into more than you have. Like eight things. And then I start praying these things. Jesus, I'd like to invite the power of your spirit into the midst of my marriage, into my pastoring of this church, into my relationship with my mother. And it was like, how how long has it been since I prayed those actual words out loud? Like, doggone it, back to kindergarten with me. But as we invite the power of the Holy Spirit, let's just do it right now. Let's pray this out loud. Holy Spirit, I invite you into my most broken relationship. Bring healing and wholeness in Jesus' name. Sacred relationships. We are committed to healthy, vibrant, family-centered relationships with God and with others. We are created in God's image, designed to thrive in relationship with God and others. We value relationships within our congregation, with our neighbors, and with our city. God has moved towards us at all costs through the person of Jesus. It is our commitment to move towards one another with similar demonstrations of love, courage, grace, and humility, especially when conflict arises. We aim for reconciliation and restorative practice in our relationships, not perfection. Chris, would you come up?
I really want to seal this because as I invited the Holy Spirit to be more present in some of those spaces that I wished he was more present in, do you know what he did this week? He showed up in those places in ways that were tangible. Because I asked, because the Father says that he gives good gifts. Let's just stand together. The church is the church wherever it goes, wherever it finds itself. And so now we have been equipped with God's word. Let's hold our hands out. We're just going to ask the Lord to speak to us. So let's just say, God, what do you want me to know? What's one little nugget? What's something I'm taking away this morning? Just take a minute and, and decide what that is. Ask the Lord, what is it I'm supposed to take away from your word this morning? You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.